Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to part two of episode 123 of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So this is our episode on the Zodiac copycat killer of New York City. But um, just so you know, this is part two of episode 123. So if you haven't listened to part one, you have to go ahead and do that because we're kind of picking up right where we left off. Yeah, we don't want you to get lost in the sauce. No, <laughs> that would be terrible. <laughs> So on the last episode, what we did was we kind of talked about the background of Eddie Seda and we went through his first three victims. So that did take us like almost two hours. So this one is actually a little bit longer. So I think we're looking at the same amount of time. Which is always good. More time with us. Yeah. More time with you guys. So where we left off, Seda believed that he had killed three people by the night of May 31st, 1990. He had shot, using his homemade zip gun, Mario Oroco, a Scorpio, Germaine Montenestro, a Gemini, and lastly, Joseph Proci, a Taurus. As of June 1st, 1990, all three men had survived. And this is something that Seda didn't know yet. A letter had been sent to the 75th Precinct on November 17th, 1989, but it had been written off as an emotionally disturbed person's letter. It was determined that that letter was not connected to any open investigations. The letter that had been left at the first crime scene had not been recovered by police. No letter was left at the second scene. But finally, at the third crime scene, the letter left by Seda had been found by the victim's neighbor as she was leaving his clothes folded at the top of the stairs. Luckily, she had found it suspicious and gave it to the police. The short note read, this is the Zodiac. The twelfth sign will die when the belts in the heavens are seen. He drew again the signature of the Zodiac and the circle with the crosshairs in it, as well as his Zodiac pie chart. So in Seda's mind, he thinks that the police have this all figured out, that they're already hunting a serial killer. He thought that the police had realized that the person who sent the letter in 1989 had committed the crime that took place on March 8, 1990, because of the letter that was left at the scene. He also thinks they have tied together the second crime with the first because the shootings happened within four blocks of each other. And then finally, the note that he left at the third crime scene tied it all in nicely because in the note that he left, there were three stones that represented the three victims and also within his zodiac pie chart, he included the symbol, the Gemini, which was the, of the second victim where he didn't leave a note. So in his mind, like they had gone all out like they did with the first zodiac or like they did with Son of Sam. So he thinks, OK, the police are hunting a serial killer and he's kind of like all in his glory at this time. Yet it has not unfolded that way at all. Like everything that they or I should say everything that he thought they were doing is kind of not how it was it's like all discombobulated they're trying to figure out like what's going on here he thinks he has three victims under his belt when in reality it's really just one 
Well, not even any because none of them have even passed away yet. That's true, actually. You're right. But I think this the the reality of what he's doing is a little different than like what the first Zodiac was doing because where his crimes are being committed, like we talked about in the first episode, is in East New York where there's about 400 shootings a year. So a lot of times, especially when the victims aren't giving corroborating statements, which in this case they they weren't, you wouldn't connect the two. It's not that the police weren't on the same page as Seda. It was literally like they were in different books. It's actually a good way to put it. (laughs) So Seda had expected the police to figure it all out by the following day, which was why he had purchased a newspaper on June 1st. He expected to see something about a serial killer on the loose, or maybe a police conference about the murders. But there was nothing. He set a timeline for the police in his head. He would give them until Monday, June 4th to figure out what was going on, or he was going to send a letter to the press, like his idol had done. Now, in defense of the detectives, um, they had no clue about the first note. And the note that was given to them by the third victim's neighbor was the first one that they really had seen. One of the detectives that was working the case was given the note and stated that the symbols and use of language sounded familiar to him. This reminded him of a case he had worked before, because this detective was on the Son of Sam task force. It was the symbols, and this wasn't just someone who was messing around. The man let the others working the case know that if this was the case, that they did potentially have a serial killer on their hands, or someone who was at least going to kill again, and this could be the biggest case of their careers. He said, whoever wrote this note is challenging us, and I believe he'll do it again. And of course, he was right. But the thing that's wrong here and made everything a little discombobulated was because the letter that he's going to send in 1989, he sends to the 75th precinct, which is in Brooklyn. But the third victim, Seda didn't realize this, actually lived in Queens. He had gone three blocks into Queens. So this is a different bunch of detectives handling this case. So now is the detective that was on the Son of Sam task force... From Queens. He's from Queens. Correct. Isn't it funny how someone that is literally just engulfed in such a case like the Son of Sam is the one to just be like, hey, listen, guys, this is strange. Like, there's something more to this that you guys aren't picking up on. Oh, 100%. And, well, this guy that's the detective now that's kind of saying, oh, I remember this... He was really just one, uh, like, he was a very low-level detective working the case. He kind of wasn't, like, part of the head of the task force. That was an officer named Borelli who actually comes into play later on. Oh, wow. Because he's the chief of detectives at this point. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I would say Catching Son of Sam really boosts your career. Like, that was a good that was a good move. <laughs> I mean, honestly, it's true, though. Like, it only takes one case that you solve, like, this, uh, like, high profile. To make your career. 100%. Like, or to take it away if you screw it up. Yeah. And this guy is the one who, like, Son of Sam actually was calling out in his letters, Borelli. That must be scary, but also, like, kind of cool, maybe. Like, you're living out the cop dream. <laughs> yeah, you're living out yeah. the cop movie dream. Like, but that also scary because that means that he is actually aware of your existence and that you're on to his trail. 
And your family. And your family, yeah. So That's scary. Weird. So detectives and crime scene analysts returned to the crime scene, the site of the third shooting. They wanted to find as much evidence as they could, but they feared that it was already too late. The analysts searched Joe's apartment, the yard, street, and the surrounding yards for weapons or anything out of the ordinary. They especially checked the sewer grates because they thought maybe that the shooter had thrown the weapon down into the sewer. So the only thing that they were able to recover from the scene was a slug that had been sitting behind the folds of the jacket that Joe had been wearing that night. The slug was either a 9mm or a 38 caliber, but what made it unique was the fact that it wasn't deformed, as most slugs are. And this is just, you know, like a little sad detail. If you remember from the first episode when we talked a little bit about Joe Procy and that he was having a lot of financial troubles, they also, when they found the slug, they found the piece of cardboard where he wrote his name and his address because he always forgot it and the sandwich that he was going to eat. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah. So finding the slug was a small victory, but it was something that they were going to take. Now, while the scene was being searched, the detectives re-interviewed all of the neighbors, as well as the eyewitnesses. They were eager to speak with the couple that had seen the man darting between cars after they heard a gunshot. Remember, this was the couple that was saying goodbye to each other that night. So they immediately run into problems with these two. They interview the woman first because she's the one who lives on the block. And the woman lets the detectives know that she and her boyfriend were not interested in talking to the police, testifying, or getting involved. When they asked why, she let them know because he was married and they were having an affair and they wanted to keep it a secret. What do I feel like this always happens? Yeah, this happened in Gaffney, South Carolina, too, with the Gaffney Strangler. Yeah. Uh, and also... But they were they told... They like, did. They came forward, which is very stand-up of them. It's true. You know, but side note, though, you and I were watching uh, Dateline the other day. Yeah. And I think the, the exact thing happened as well. We were watching a couple of episodes, and that's exactly what happened. So it's weird how it always plays a part. It's like, oh, you have this couple witness, these two witnesses that are totally credible, but... But they don't want to talk because they're yeah. doing something bad themselves. Yep. And they don't want to get caught. Yeah. It that, happens all the time. I know. It's really, it sucks. It's like every time a crime is committed, there's a couple having an affair watching it go down, but they'll never tell. Maybe it's because when you're having the affair, you might be in shady locations where yeah. crimes are committed. Or it's just happening on your block. Or, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> or you just yeah. live in East New York. <laughs> That's very true. Um, so that's like really disappointing. And of course, you know, if they really did want to push this couple legally, they could do that. But they really like the detectives felt they really didn't get a good look at the man. So it would just be a waste of time for them to kind of push this legally. If you know what I mean? No, it makes sense. There was one other eyewitness the neighbor that lived in the same like house as Joe, but lived on the second floor. Remember, he looked out his window when he heard shots and he saw someone running away from the scene. So the man said that he did see the shooter, but he wasn't sure if he would ever be able to pick him up out of a lineup because it was dark and he was at least about 30 yards away when he first saw him and then he ran away with his back towards him. So the detectives agreed with him that that just kind of wouldn't fly in court. 
So they try to speak with the victim again, but they're unsuccessful. And this is kind of really frustrating because now you have one of the victims that actually spoke to the shooter, right? Because remember, Joe, remember he asked him for a glass of water. But Joe is so unreliable just because of his old age and he was really starting to go like senile. His memory was terrible. I mean, he had to have a card in his jacket so he remembered where he lived. Yeah, I mean, you can't really take that for face value. Correct. His testimony and what he sounded like or what he looked like even. Right. And on top of him being unreliable just because of his age and the problems he's having with his memory, he also got shot and went through trauma that night. So it's kind of like a cruel joke to investigators. And they say, like, the worst witness you can have is an eyewitness because our memories are so unreliable, especially when you do go through a trauma, because then your memories kind of change and mold into something that they really aren't. But the worst part is that you think it's true. So Joe Procy got confused a lot. The events of that night, he kind of changed back and forth several times. At first, he said the man was robbing him. And then he said the man didn't rob him. And then they were kind of asking him, well, was the shooter black or white? Then he went back and forth about whether he described the shooter as black or white. And then at one point, the detectives were just like so frustrated And there was a nurse in the room and she was black, but she was wearing a white uniform. So they said, Joe, what color is she? And he said white. Okay. So it's like he doesn't even really understand or know what's going on. So they were kind of like, Joe is very unreliable. So let's kind of stop trying to question him. We're going to have to find physical evidence to, to support us and back us up. I mean, you have so much playing against you. With this witness, even though it's the most recent uh, victim, I think the best thing that they could do is go back to the other dude, um, the one with the cane. Well, they don't know that they're connected yet. Oh, that's right. Oh, my God. See, see, because that would be better because he literally looked right at him, stared at him for a while, and he literally spoke to him. Well, the one that was staring at him like for a really long time, remember he said he was white. True. So he was unreliable, too. I know. It's difficult. It is difficult. It's, that's, that I think this case is a really big example of how even though witnesses want to be helpful because they're victims of the crime, memory is unreliable, and then it plays tricks on you, and you think it's a fact. I mean, at some point, I'm sure they're going to have to figure this out and, and connect it. Yeah. I mean, basically, at one point, they described the Zodiac shooter. I mean, there's sketches everywhere of this overweight black man. And everyone calls him, I mean, you only know this if you're from, like, the New York, New Jersey area, but they call him, like, an angry Al Roker. Are you serious? Yeah, because they, he looked like an angry Al Roker in the, oh, in the sketch. Oh, come on. They just did him dirty. I know. Come on. I know. He's a weatherman Al Roker's in cool area. as hell. He's so cool. I know. Um, it's actually funny because I was talking to my mom about this recently because, I, you know, be- between, you know, these two episodes I spoke to her. And uh, my mom's reaction was funny. She's like, oh, that's what he was called? I forgot. But I, but I, what I do remember is the sketches everywhere. And I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Like, like my mom doesn't really, like, watch TV or, like, care about that kind of stuff. So, Well, at this point, you had just been born. Like, she was pregnant with you. You were just born in yeah. 91. So yeah. she was probably overwhelmed with taking care of you. Probably. I mean, yeah. that was a handful. So. Yeah. <laughs> so... 
it just shows how unreliable they are because like Eddie Seda is a slim Hispanic man. Yeah, it doesn't. So it couldn't be <laughs> yeah. further from, you know, the truth, the sketches. So oblivious to the investigation that is taking place regarding his third crime, Eddie is very upset by Monday, June 4th. Because when that date rolls around, remember that's the date that he gave police to figure this out by, he still has heard nothing on TV and saw nothing in print. So he decided that he had to take action. Again, he is so unaware the police only have one brief note to work with. So while wearing gloves, he constructed another note, and he placed it in a pre-stamped envelope and addressed it to the editor of the New York Post at 210 South Street. He licked the envelope closed and placed it in a mailbox. He was very careful not to touch it with his bare fingers, which is great, but now he has DNA on the envelope, but... It's also 1990, so he has no comprehension as to what DNA is. Yeah, it's so funny. Like, what a mistake nowadays, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, I just think it's funny that he did go through the trouble of having, like, a pre-stamped envelope, but then he licks the envelope. Yeah, but like you said, I mean, he's unaware. Yeah. I mean, look at the extent of um, all the things to not get caught, like making your own gun. You know, there's no... um, paper trail with a gun um buying stamps buying yeah like all that stuff is like you're kind of like incognito but like you know nowadays if you were to look that envelope they could just put that into codis and like if you happen to be in this you know at all in the system at any time like you'd get caught well that's what's (laughs) saving eddie seda right now and will later on too is that he's not in the system yeah so the letter arrived on the 6th of june the letter was opened by a copy boy at the post It was bizarre, and it involved crime, so we gave it to the paper's police reporter at the time, Anne Murray. He was right. The letter was definitely bizarre, and it piqued the attention of Murray. At the top of the letter were two circles. The one on the left was a symbol of the zodiac, a circle with a large cross that was larger than the circle itself. Again, it looked like a scope, and to the right of that circle was an even larger circle. Imagine like a pizza pie, but only three slices have been drawn and the rest is blank. In each of the three slices, there is a symbol of a zodiac sign, a Scorpio, a Gemini, and a Taurus. They represented the three victims. Now, the implication of that blank space was like shown like it's reserved for the other victims that they'll be. Right. So now the assumption is that he's going to kill one person from each sign. Beneath the circles was the same message that had been on the note that was found at the third crime scene. This is the Zodiac. The twelfth sign will die when the heavens are seen. Below that, there was a list of all the crimes. It said the following. The first sign is dead on March 8th, 1990, 1.45 a.m., White man with cane shoot in back in the street. Remember, it's the same thing that he wrote in his journal. The second sign is dead, March 29th, 1990, 2.57 a.m. White man with black coat shoot in the side in front of house. The third sign is dead on May 31st, 1990, 2.04 a.m. White old man with cane shoot in front of house. To the right of the list was the name Faust, which was underlined three times. 
This was a reference to a magician in one of the books that he was getting his kind of like information from. And at the bottom, it read, no more pigs. And beneath that was a quickly scribbled Z that seemed like it was kind of not completed. Then below that was a final detail about all the crimes. In Brooklyn, with 380 RNL, or 9mm, no grooves on bullet. There's a, a few things that I just want to point out about this letter. The, there was a lot of grammatical errors with the Zodiac letters as well, and some people thought maybe people that have studied the letter that that was intentional. And with Eddie Seda, the letters are also going to have a lot of grammatical errors, but that we learn later on, which we'll get to at the end of this episode, is something that he was doing unintentionally. Remember, his he dropped out of school at a young age, so like his schooling really isn't there. So that's why he does have these grammatical errors. So I just thought that was, you know, a little interesting detail. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I actually enjoyed you uh, reading it that way. <laughs> No, it was really, it's hard to read it that way because you want to fix it in your head. I know, I know. Sometimes when I type the script, I screw up and then I correct it in my head. So I kept trying to do that, you know? It was actually funny because I could see Kay over here trying to read that and like the smoke was like coming out of her ears. I know. It's like as a teacher, like you just want to get a red pen out and be like, no. That was actually funny. (laughs) So Anne Murray was very interested in this letter. And remembering the letters from Son of Sam, she wanted to get this over to the police right away. And she took the letter straight to the top. She went to One Police Plaza, the headquarters of the NYPD. Or 1PP if you watch Blue Bloods. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for you to say that. 1PP. So, or you work in NY, in the NYPD because I feel like you probably more realistically call it, but all of us Blue Blood lovers... That's what we say, too. Sure. I feel like we're a part of it, you know? (laughs) That's what they want you to feel like. I know. Yeah. We know the lingo. Yeah. But we don't. But we do not. No. The headquarters was able to quickly determine that there was no active cases in Brooklyn where any letters or symbols had been found. But Murray was still convinced that this letter was not a hoax. See, and this is where things get a little tricky. Because that letter from 1989 was never processed because it was found to be involved with no active cases. So it was never put on file. It was just kind of made a joke around the the 75th precinct. Great. Right. (laughs) And that was the only time a letter arrived in Brooklyn. The third letter is from Queens. So because the people at 1PP didn't check out Queens because he said only Brooklyn in his letter. They didn't find out about the third letter. Yeah, it's, it's these it, technicalities. Yeah. You know what's interesting though when he's when this person when he's writing this letter, I should say, right? Like, it's weird how he's putting a lot of information in on it because like he's putting down, he's time stamping his well air quotes here murders. Um, but if in a way, I feel like that kind of screws you up a little bit because. If you're a murderer and you're you're actively doing this, you're kind of giving away your MO, like where you like to operate. So here, okay, you like to operate at night in the shadow of night. Like, I don't know, like, like little things like that, though, people can pick up. They know they're going to pick up on that. They might station people now to watch out the streets at nighttime because now they know your MO. They know when you're going to hit. Right. I think, well, he wanted to do this because this is exactly what the Zodiac did. And it's so funny because it never really seems to matter, does it? 
I mean, I guess not. Like yeah. the Zodiac said, you know, basically, this is when I'm committing these crimes. And this is what people are doing when I commit these crimes. Didn't stop people from going out to lovers lanes or doing things like that. And same thing with Son of Sam. Because yeah, I think in, in people that, still did it. Yeah. Like in that time, especially for uh, the original Zodiac, I feel like people just didn't think things like this could happen. Like it was just a different world, different time. Like, I mean, even though it's 1990 now in the 90s. I mean, things, people are a little bit more aware and, and a little bit yeah. more awake to what could possibly be happening, you know? But I feel like people also get mad, like it did with Son of Sam, and they right. were like, we're not going to let this guy change what we do. That's so, true. It's interesting. But usually when warnings are given out, there's still victims that are found because not everyone listens. So it was not until a detective from Queens saw the faxed letter while he stopped in a Brooklyn precinct. So see what happened is that Murray wasn't giving like she was like, no, there is something going on. It's not a hoax. So she faxed the letter to all the precincts in Brooklyn. And when a Queens detective was following up a lead at a Brooklyn precinct, he saw the letter. Okay, and he put two and two together. He goes, that looks a lot like the letter we have. So the detective sent the new letter, the one from Anne Murray, who, by the way, wanted an exclusive with his precinct um, to his detectives back in Queens so they can kind of look into it. And all the detectives in Brooklyn now are searching to find two shootings that match the description of the first two mentioned in the letter. So the ones that took place on March 8th and March 29th. And they were able to find two cases of first-degree assault with a firearm. And both of these cases match the description given. But, of course, as we know, there's a problem because the bullets from those two cases, those two shootings, the police in Brooklyn didn't have those two slugs to kind of check if there were no grooves or what kind of slugs they were because those bullets were still lodged in the victim's. That's right. They couldn't get them out. Right. So looking further into the three victims, the detectives from the 75th precinct, the ones who had now been assigned the case, in conjunction with the detectives from Queens, realized that the astrological signs of the three victims in the case match the signs of the pie chart above his letter. So this is when they realized, now, see, now they're starting to put it together that he was killing people based on their zodiac signs i mean i'll tell you what leave uh, leave it to the reporter see this is the thing right um i feel like we always think that like the news is kind of like some of the people there could be a little annoying like reporters and like whatever have you you know but in this case she's totally entitled to her like uh her interview her private interview with that precinct because she's the one that made it aware to police and kind of like made a picture for them to follow here right like i mean she earned her exclusive she definitely earned her exclusive <laughs> for sure um but like this is a case where media can help police and they can work side by side and right. it does work it makes a a stronger cohesive unit i mean it does right now the tension and horror in the air when they found out that they were now dealing with a serial killer was palpable i mean there's nothing about the note that was a hoax And now they've connected it to the letter that was sent in 1989. 
And one of the most chilling details that the detectives thought they were working with was the fact that the shooter must be stalking their victims because how else would they f- he find out their astrological signs? Remember, this is the days before the internet and you don't just scroll through someone's Instagram feed to find out when their birthday is. Like he had to somehow know what their signs were. But remember, they don't know that the second victim, Jermaine Montenestro, remember that was pure luck. He just found that drunk man and he was like, he'll be a good victim. Right, right. So luck was on his side with that one. So now the connection was made and Eddie Seda had his wish. His killing spree, or so he thought, had made the front page of the New York Post on June 19, 1990. On the same day, the copycat Zodiac made the headlines. The chief of detectives met with the 75th Precinct and the Queen's Precinct to determine how much progress had been made. Now, again, like I said, the side note is the chief of detectives is Borelli, the guy whose son of Sam was kind of working with. So it is good that they're getting direction from someone who has firsthand knowledge on working a serial killer case where the serial killer was taunting the police and contacting the media. No, it's true. It's definitely like a an edge that other departments maybe in other cities might not have had. Right. Which is good. Right. Well, I should say good for them, bad for other departments, but... Well, it's good that they have a leadership that knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's high stress, you know? I mean, this Mm -hmm. is like, this is insane what's going on. Yeah. And he can understand. It's not just, okay, you're getting pressure from above, solve this, solve this, because this man's been through the same thing. Being the detective trying to solve a frustrating case. Yeah. So, Borelli was not happy with the Brooklyn detectives. Um, Because they hadn't made any progress, they didn't put anything together, and they made a joke of the 1989 letter when it was first sent. Borelli was also upset because the 7-5 had also, like I said before, just been through that corruption hearing. So they were on the shit list of the NYPD, big time, because it, it bought them really bad press. So I think that this made things even worse for them. And it was really the Queen's detectives that made the big breaks. So they were the ones who were kind of awarded the task force to start and try and take him down. Yeah, Queen's represent. Yeah. (laughs) So they were able to determine that their guy was a copycat of the Zodiac from 1969. And a detective from the Queen's department also figured this out. He was attacking on 21-day intervals. There had been an attack 21 days between the first and second shooting and 63 days between the second and third. So he waited three 21-day cycles between the second and third shooting. Now, this had to have something to do with the constellations because he was very obviously obsessed with the Zodiac and everything he was doing was based on the victim's signs. So this was a major break in the case that they knew, okay, every 21 days, we know we have something to prepare for and a way to possibly catch him. Now, you think that they kind of pieced any of this together based on what he wrote down on that letter? No, I think that they were doing it based on like um, constellation cycles. Okay. And it was interesting that there was 21 day intervals and then three cycles between. Okay. Cause so they're like, saying if it yeah. has something to do with like signs and like changing of, of signs that 
there has to be some correlation. Like it can't be a coincidence. I guess that's the problem with being a copycat killer is that there has been someone before you and they have something to go on as well. That yeah. has to help because they have to look and be like, you know, um, this is what the Zodiac did. This is following the Zodiac cycles or whatever. You know, now you have information to like, pull we from. We know what you're, conne- you're connected yeah. with constellations. Right. So that's the first thing we'll look at. I'm sure like even going forward or even behind the scenes, like they were looking at comparisons and, and like maybe like things that were similar. It's possible. It's information. It's a it's a, a well of knowledge that you wouldn't have had if there wasn't a Zodiac killer or other killers that people, you know, copied off of. No, 100%, because it's almost like these detectives do have the edge, like you said, because they're going to just now go off the work that other detectives did in the original Zodiac case. Come on, guys, be original. I'm just kidding. John. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Nobody be an original serial killer. Uh, I'm kidding. We do not condone serial killers. (laughs) I'm just kidding around. PSA. Just kidding around, yes. (laughs) Okay. Before we get back into the show, I just want to take a break to talk about our first sponsor, Lumi Labs. In today's crazy world, and in our crazy world, of trying to balance work, the podcast, our friends and family, relaxation has truly been the key to our lives. And the introduction of microdosing has been incredibly beneficial for our overall well-being. It allows you to feel like you on your best day. Microdosing is an amazing concept. It provides safe, reliable, and accurate doses of legally available THC that take you to that sweet spot between CBD and getting high. So you only have the benefits of a mood lift, reduction of pain, a creative boost, and that ever-so-needed sense of calm. This is a product that we're really excited and passionate about. And we hope that it can help you like it helped us. Now, Lumi Labs are the creators of microdose gummies, and their overall mission is to raise awareness around the concept of microdosing, which is the safe use of psychedelics to provide a solution for people interested in microdosing THC for general wellness and performance. Again, microdose gummies was created for people who want to just feel the right amount of good without getting high. However, if that is your goal, Lumi Labs has created a line of full-strength, strain-specific Lumi gummies that come in sativa, indica, and hybrid varieties, all delivering a range of nuanced effects. Our favorite, of course, is the Microdose Wildberry, but the strain-specific flavors are also out of this world. And as if they couldn't get any better, these gummies are organic, infused with real fruit, and are vegan-friendly and gluten-free. Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdosegummies.com and use code TCC to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show description. But again, that's microdosegummies.com, code TCC. Okay, let's get back to the show. So now, if the theory was correct about the 21-day intervals, it meant that the next shooting could potentially take place in two days. So imagine now you have to try to figure this out before someone else dies. In two days. Or hurt, or whatever, because, you know, he thinks he's killing people. Right. But not yet. So to try and catch him, the task force um, was set up, like, 
the people that had control over the task force were in Queens, but they obviously had to use Brooklyn detectives and officers because that seemed to be where his like stomping his hunting grounds were. So they had to kind of get a sting going or set a trap up to try and find him. And to do this, they had to act really fast. And this joint effort between the two precincts and this like sting they were going on, it was called Operation Watchdog. I always find the operation names really cool and it makes it seem like legit, like super legit. Yeah, like Operation Watchdog is a good one. I like that one. Yeah. There's been some bad ones. Now, back at the ranch, Seda had just read the article that had been written about him in the post, and he was not as happy as he thought he would have been when he read it. First, the writer said that he was a copycat and not the original Zodiac. Remember, he wanted them to think that he was the original Zodiac. Second, he found out that as of June 19th, none of his victims had died, and this was something that angered him greatly. That's crazy. I know. You're almost happy. You're like, yes. Yeah, like, no victims. You're not allowed. Yeah. In a later article that was really more about the police trying to catch him than the crimes he actually committed, Seda learned that he had been ID'd as an overweight black man, which is something that greatly benefited him because he obviously was not an overweight black man. He was a thin Hispanic man. In this letter, some interesting observations were made. Both Zodiacs, like in this article that was kind of written by for the police, they said that both Zodiacs had several things in common. They loved generating mass fear with creepy occult threats. They loved taunting the police in the newspaper. And they both had a bloodlust to hunt and kill human beings that was stronger than or in the place of their sex drive. So that was kind of like the psychological profile on these two men. I wonder if that like bruises ego a little bit. Yeah. Or hurt him in some form. Well, it's interesting, like Eddie Seda with the whole thing, because he had never really talked to any females, but he was kind of like obsessed with porn because that was something he did own a lot of when they, you know, eventually are going to find his apartment. But well, the, room that he has in the apartment with his mother and sister but um he does make a comment a little bit later on that we'll get into and i think kind of tunes us into this imagine like having to own like porno magazines or tapes you know things before you know like the internet you could just search for things and like hide it like before the hub you know like (laughs) Sorry, but like, I'm just saying, like, imagine, like, you have this big, like, tub of things underneath your bed. Like, it's like, hard to hide a VHS. Yeah, you almost feel weird for, yeah. like, doing it. I mean, I'm just saying, it's weird. It it adds a creepy factor. It's a creep, yeah, it's yeah. like you're a creepo guy. Like, someone finds your porn stash, that's embarrassing. Exactly. There's now the- it's like if someone finds your search history, it's embarrassing. I mean, I guess. But I'm just saying, like, for this guy, it's, it's uh, interesting. It's something he has, yes. So upset about the fact that no one had died and that they didn't think he was the original Zodiac, Seda chose to write another letter to the police. In this one, he copies two phrases, one in French and the other in Latin. Again, he signed the letter Faust and underlines it three times. Then he draws a cross beneath it. And at the three bottom points of the cross, he writes the number six. So it reads 666 as attached to the cross. 
than a drawing of the Zodiac based on the hooded description from San Francisco. But he doesn't immediately send this letter. He just writes it up in anger. We'll get to this exact letter a little bit later on. On the night of June 21st, the detectives had been right about the cycle. Seda completed his ritual as he always did at his house, and then he went out again. But this time he was somewhere completely different. Seda ventured out to Central Park. As he sat on a park bench, he watched a tall man create a space on a bench for himself so he could sleep there for the night. His name was Larry Parham. Now this is something that I find really interesting. Every single one of his victims have these like heart-wrenching stories and you feel like so bad for them because they've conquered so much hardship in their life and then they have to like be victims of this guy. So it's 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 actually really so sad. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. You know what it really shows, though? It really shows that there is so many people in the boroughs of New York City that are just in such poverty and, and just really bad, messed up situations. Yeah. And there's just no, not, like nothing anyone can do for them. There's no relief. Or no one has set up anything to help these people. Yeah, it's sad. So, like, yeah, like, you know, there's so many people that are on park benches all the time. Like, for people who are not from this area, they would think, oh, my God, what's going on here? That's an everyday occurrence. That's, yeah. like, an everyday thing. Like, and more than once. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I drive in the city all the time. I drive through Central Park. I'm all over the place. You see that multiple times in one day. So, it's like... You know, it's like as we're telling the story, it's like, okay, he's finding these people that are like, you know, not well off or in bad situations. But the reality is there's so many people like that. Right. And it's interesting because through the story of Larry Parham, it's like you almost can understand how someone's in that situation. And um, that's what makes you feel so bad for him because he's trying so hard to kind of start his life again. So Larry was a 30-year-old man from Brooklyn who had fallen on some hard times. But on that day, June 21st, 1990, things really started looking up for him. Larry had lived with his girlfriend, but the two broke up. And his current living situation was that he was on welfare and he was saving up for an apartment of his own. So to save money, he was spending his nights in the park. And he had just gotten a job on June 21st. So it was like, oh, things were like fine. Like he was catching a break and he did have $4,000 in his savings account. But, you know, the cost of living in New York City is so expensive. So it was just, you know, he was saving up. So we had enough to not only put a down payment on an apartment, but to be able to buy something to be able to sleep on and to be able to afford that rent and not be like kicked out your first month you know yeah no it's it's rough it's definitely rough i mean prices are pretty steep yeah so like he didn't like being homeless but he this was like a temporary situation so he just kind of felt like okay let me go through this just so i can be in a good situation later and larry parham was a very he didn't look like someone who was homeless like he really did he took care of his clothes um like he did, he always brought his clothes to the laundromat and he looked very neat and kind of put together. 
He also could have gone to a shelter, but Larry didn't like staying in a shelter because they're more dangerous and you're more likely to get robbed there than you were out on the street. So he had all of his belongings with him in a bag. He had a Bible, pens, a notebook, a hairbrush, and some clothes. On the night of June 21st, he was feeling good. He'd just gotten a job, and that meant the goal of getting his own apartment was going to be faster approaching than he thought. He chose to sleep on the bench that night near the Bethesda Fountain. He was a neat man who had a routine. He laid out a long piece of cardboard along the bench so he would be a little bit more comfortable. He placed his bag beneath the bench, took off his shoes, and placed his wallet inside one of those shoes that were located beneath the bench. Sleeping on his right side, he threw his jacket over his head so he could sleep easily. Nearby, Seda watched. While Operation Watchdog was going down in Brooklyn, he was about to attack someone in Manhattan. He slowly approached Larry and removed his wallet. He found out that the man was born on June 29, 1959. He was a cancer. Seda had taken the glove of his right hand off to get the ID out of the man's wallet. He put the card back in the wallet and the wallet back in the shoe. He carefully held the note that he had written at home by the edges. He still doesn't have his glove on. Oh my God, okay. So he's handling the note without a glove because he was trying to get the ID out and he couldn't get it out. So he thought he was being careful as he was only holding it by the edges and he drew the sign for cancer on the fourth slice of the pie that he had drawn on the letter. He refolded the message and he put the note on the bench with a rock on top of it. Seda made sure to check his watch. He saw that it was 3.52 a.m. He made a note of it, and then he pointed the gun about one foot away from Larry Parham's heart and pulled the trigger. The 38 caliber bullet punctured the middle of his chest, missing his aorta and exiting through his armpit and lodging itself into the bench below him. The shot jolted Larry awake. He was in excruciating pain, and he felt wet. When he reached down to his chest, he realized that he was bleeding. He managed to roll himself off of the park bench and crawl towards the road. He kept calling out for people to help him. It was just before 4 a.m. There was no one around. So the more Larry crawled around calling for help, the weaker he got. Finally, a man approaching him, this was a homeless man who was pushing a cart filled with his belongings and cans, and the man asked Larry what was wrong. Larry told him that he thought he had been shot. The other homeless man ran to get help for him, but in his confusion, Larry thought the man was just running away, so he continued to crawl around calling out for help. But he was so exhausted, like he didn't even realize he was crawling in a circle. And eventually he got so tired that he curled up into a fetal position and just prayed that someone would come help him. That's really sad. Yeah. I mean, but you know what, though? At least it, well, I mean, it, it pierced, it didn't pierce his heart. No, it didn't. So, I mean, that's lucky. And I can kind of say that that's probably because this isn't a real gun. The accuracy is all over the place. And it has not necessarily anything to do with him. Um, 
you know, like sh- like holding it to shoot it, but it also is the barreling in which this bullet's coming out. It has no rifling in the barrel, so it's probably not accurate when it comes out. When a bullet comes out, a bullet spins on its way out. This thing is just his own design, so it's just like lobbing a bullet out of the barrel. And you don't know where it's going right, to go. Right, so it's very different than just a gun itself. Also, when people say, um, you know, New York City is a city that never sleeps, it's a lie. Total yeah. lie. You want to know why? I'll tell you why. I worked every day at Ground Zero from when I was 18 to 19 years old. Okay, I was there. I was rebuilding that entire area for you know for those two years. I could safely say for two years, all of Manhattan. When I, when I leave to come home, there's no one out there. So around three or four in the morning, no one's there. I no. promise you that you won't see anyone. You would you you'd probably see a tumbleweed or a rat. <laughs> like there's nothing there. So I can promise you on that. There's nothing going on. The rats in New York City are the tumbleweeds. Because yeah, because <laughs> bars bars you know yeah bars are open late but not that late. There's no one and around. And they close around too. Right. There's no one around. So a city that never sleeps. That's not really true. Yeah, there was no one there to help him. But this homeless man who actually is able to flag down a police car that he sees. That's good. Now, there is, oh, because there's always police cars because, fun fact, Central Park has its own precinct. Yeah, inside. Yeah. Yeah. So they do kind of always patrol the air because the park's a really dangerous place at night. Yeah. Now Not they, recommended to go to Central Park at night. Yeah, now they got little uh, smart cars and, like, the, the little motorcycles that the police drive. Yeah. They literally, look, they literally look like little mopeds. It's funny. <laughs> I feel like it's hard to be taken seriously in a smart car and a moped. I know. Hey, got to do what you got to do. Plus, they got to fit in the park. No, it's true. Yeah, you, you know? do. So the officers thought that Larry was sleeping when they first saw him curled up on the ground. But as they approached, he started calling out for help again. He told them that he had moved to this location, but he had been shot while sleeping on the park bench. They called for an ambulance and asked him if he had any ID on him. He told them that he did in his wallet, which was located in his shoe. Sure enough, they found the wallet in the shoe beneath the bench. They also noticed that Larry's bag, filled with all of his things, was still there. In the wallet, they found his ID and cash. So it was clear that robbery was not a motive. Someone had shot this man because they were angry at him or for no reason. Then they saw it. A note with the Zodiac symbol was on the park bench. They immediately notified the task force that was investigating the Zodiac. Because as of right now, I mean, every precinct within the boroughs knew about what they were looking for in Queens and Brooklyn. So they contacted them right away. So the task force, their sting, Operation Watchdog, had been in the wrong borough. Oh, and also, just to be sure that this wasn't the real Zodiac from 1969, even though it would be a stretch because so many years had passed, there were people that the San Francisco Police Department suspected of being the Zodiac. They had those men tailed to see if they were catching flights to New York. Really? Yes. Oh, fun fact, huh? Yes. That's cool. Yep. So none of those men had left, and there's a letter now. So this definitely, it confirms to them this is a copycat Zodiac and he's killed someone else. And now we don't know where he's going to strike again because he's killed someone in three boroughs so far. Larry Parham would survive the shot. He was lucky that the gun had a strong kickback because that's another thing too with these zip guns. The, like the recoil is so intense that it does affect where the bullet ends up. 
yeah, I think everything to do with this is just, that's why everyone's getting lucky. I mean, I'm so glad, but this is why everyone's getting lucky because, you know, everything, you know, accuracy, everything is just being affected. So it's not an effective, uh, in, you know, killing weapon. Right. So because that happened, it didn't hit his heart. Now, unfortunately, Larry, who was a very intelligent and coherent man, was unable to give a description of the shooter because he had been sleeping when he was shot. And as soon as Seda shot him, he ran away. So, of course, now we have this reliable victim that we can't use. Right. I mean, he was sleeping. Because he was sleeping. (laughs) So the note that was left on the bench that Larry had been sleeping on had again the Zodiac symbol of the circle and crosshairs, and then the familiar pie chart. However, now there were four slices cut out. And it appeared that he added the shooting of Larry because the fourth slice featured a symbol of the cancer, the sign that Larry was. The phrase, the twelfth sign will die when the belts in the heavens are seen. The letter was again signed Faust, and with the 666 cross, so this is the one he made in anger. And he did include those foreign phrases. So the first phrase was in French and the translation of the French saying was shame to he who thinks evil. So this they're thinking is, okay, he's killing people that he thinks are evil, right? This is him and his hatred towards street people, as he always says, calls them. Then there was the Latin phrase and the translation of the given Latin phrase was the die is cast. So the detectives immediately begin researching these phrases and their importance in history, which there was. The French phrase had been connected deeply with English knighthood for 600 years. And that was kind of like, you know, they're there to conquer evil. And the Latin phrase was a phrase that's attributed to Julius Caesar when he crossed the Rubicon to fight the Gauls. Uh, It's a famous moment in history when he basically was saying I'm either going to be victorious or I'm going to die. And he's like, this is sealing my fate. So the detectives tried to tie these phrases in with the philosophy of what they knew so far about the Zodiac. But little do they know that the phrases were chosen on a whim. And Eddie Seda just wanted to convince them that he was the Zodiac from San Francisco. So the Zodiac from San Francisco people think was this very intelligent person. So he, Eddie is going to put these phrases in this letter because he thinks it makes him sound intelligent. Well, you might want to start with pronouncing the right, you know, shot and shoot. Yeah. You know, that might be your first step. But Zodiac mispronounced things too. And they said, and actually the same thing happened with um, BTK. Things are like spelled wrong and mispronounced on purpose to hide someone's intelligence. What I want to know is why would Seda, like, why would he want them to believe that he was the Zodiac and not a copycat? Like, what is driving this obsession with being someone else and not him? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like. Well, his identity was tied up in with this man. He had an obsession with serial killers and he would watch serial killer documentaries and he would take notes on it. And he thought that Zodiac was the best because he was essentially punishing people for sinning. So I think it has to do with the fact that he considered this man to be an idol of his. 
because Seda was raised in this strictly religious household where, yes, he does control the household, but it has been embedded in his mind that you shouldn't have sex before marriage and you shouldn't be a sinner. And like his mother, she's trying to do the right thing by making him and his sister, who goes the opposite direction, uber religious to combat the sinful world around them of prostitutes and drug dealers outside of their apartment building. And he gets fanatical about it and he connects with Zodiac because he thought, okay, well, Zodiac was killing these teenagers that were, um, you know, like making out and on Lover's Lane and stuff. And I think because he's jealous he doesn't have that or can't have that, that's where his anger comes from. Yeah, I just find it bizarre. Like we're not talking about someone that um, is idolizing someone and then trying to like emulate them. emulate it this is more of he wants to be him yeah i idolize this person so much i want to be this guy and continue his work it's very different i know what you're saying because most serial killers especially ones who send letters to either media or the police kind of want that glory for themselves but i think this shows that maybe Seda has an uncomfortability in his own skin and he wants to be someone else yeah, I also think his, I think, I mean, yeah, I mean, his reality would have to be warped at this point because you think, look at all the people that he's going after. Those people are not sinners. And I said that in the first part of this no, episode. No, they're good people. Like, right, like they've fallen on hard times, but that does not make someone a bad person. So his his um, conception of what is a sinner or a bad person or whatever is like, it's distorted. And it's also very, you know, obviously what he's doing is also going against what religion is saying is because it's not our job to judge people. If, you know, you are a religious person, you believe that it's God's job to judge someone and that instead of offering someone, like if you're going the religious route, instead of offering someone a chance to like repent for their sins, you're just killing them like that goes against the religious message. But again, when we talk about these killers who are fanatical, you cannot apply logic. No, you can't. I'm just trying to understand why wouldn't you just be satisfied with being a copycat killer? Why are you trying to take an already established killer with a track record and make it your own? Because he wanted to do exactly what Zodiac did. And he is in in this world where we're especially in the 90s, we start getting this obsession with serial killers because we're coming off of that, like, I hate to call it this, but the golden age of serial killers, which was like the late 70s, early 80s, when you had all of these intense serial killers that now people idolize, he wants to replicate that. And the fastest way for him to do that is to piggyback off of the one he admires the most. I mean, I believe that that's the most fascinating part of Seda at, at this point in time of the podcast. I think that that's something that's that's the best part about this. Yeah. Is that like, you know, the route that he's choosing and how he's doing it. No, I agree with you. It's definitely interesting. And I think it says a lot about where he is psychologically at this time. Yeah. So even though his intention when he included those phrases was to prove that he was the Zodiac from San Francisco, it actually had the opposite effect. It did not prove that he was the original Zodiac, but it did prove that he was on a psychopathic mission, which he really was. 
And at this time, the task force was given a lot of resources because everyone in Brooklyn, Queens, and now Manhattan was terrified of the shootings. To them, it was Son of Sam all over again. After the fourth shooting, Seda sent another letter to the Post. It read, Fourth sign dead. Shoot in Central Park, white man sleeping on bench with little black bag. Shoot in chest, June 21st, 1990, 3.52 a.m. The rest of the page was filled with drawings and writings where he was trying to convince the Post that he was the same Zodiac that was active in California decades prior. He went on to say he purposely changed the handwriting and that they were the same Zodiac. He also gave details from the crimes in California that took place in 1969. However, these are very well-known details, so it's something that he could have easily just picked up from a book on the Zodiac. Then he actually drew a sketch of the Zodiac in a square-topped executioner's mask with a Zodiac symbol on his chest. Now, this is from a popular book that was written about the original Zodiac killer. He then wrote the word mask and a narrow arrow to the drawn figure. To the right of the image, he wrote the words, me in the park. This is similar. One Zodiac. So I don't, I don't want to make this comical. But drawing that picture, pointing an arrow and saying, this is me, does not prove that you're the Zodiac. <laughs> it's <just> very bizarre. <laughs> I know. I don't yeah. want to... I... It's hard not to laugh, I feel like, you know, but like, I mean. It's like, no, dude, you're not selling this well. And if you can't sell it, like you're saying, like, why is he not just admitting that he's a copycat? Like, the fact that he wants to prove he is the Zodiac might prove that at this point he is delusional enough to maybe believe that he thinks he is or he thinks he's the reincarnation of the original Zodiac. Or he could be making a play at, like, like, okay, Maybe not, but just hear me out. You know how, like, there's been, I'm sure there's been, there has to be a case where it's like, um, like, we are Zodiac or like, like where it's not just one person, it's a yes. collective, you know? Like an American Horror Story cult. Yes, actually, yeah. yes. So it's like the collective of a group of people that claim to be Zodiac. That have a mission and then Correct. you're looking to add people onto it. So it's this continuous crime. Correct. Like, could that be? That's a, you know. I don't think that's what he's getting at, but I think that's absolutely terrifying. I think so. Like, this shadowy, like, group that. A cult of serial killers. Yeah, that claims to always be Zodiac. Like, you know, but it is interesting. And, like, here you go. You got the investigators thinking it, like, (laughs) you know, based on the victim's testimony that it's, it's a chubby Al Roker. And this guy is making, like, cartoon sketches of himself with arrows. It's like. Right, right. This is. It's becoming comical, but he doesn't see it that way. Correct. He sees like he's trying to, like he's striking fear into the public. No, and then at this point, the um, like the police are just like they're calling him like Z Man. Like the, although what he's doing is terrible and he's shooting people, they're surviving. So I think police aren't taking it as seriously as they would. I'm not saying they didn't take it seriously. They were really trying to stop him at this point. They have the task force. They're pouring resources into it. But no one's died yet. So it's more like this man's wreaking havoc and causing pain. But he's not a killer yet. And I think when he becomes a killer, it takes a a darker turn. Yeah. So... Three days after the shooting of victim number four, Joe Procy, the third victim, 
died of his gunshot wounds in the hospital. Oh, that's sad. Yes. And this is the man who lived in Queens that had the cardboard in his pocket. He died of an infection. Seda was responsible for his first death, something he was very happy to learn about. For serving his country during World War II, Joe received a seven-gun salute at his funeral and was buried under a single white cross next to his fellow veterans at the same cemetery his killer used as his hunting grounds. How chilling is that? Yeah. So the task force was ready for their copycat Zodiac to strike again on the night of July 11th and the early morning hours of July 12th. It seemed the whole city was ready for him to strike again that night. The NYPD was warning people not to share their birthdays or signs with anyone and to be on the lookout. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, because anybody's a potential victim and anybody could be the person. So Right, and that's why, like, really, when you hear about this case, they say, like, the whole city of New York in the early 1990s was like, oh, what sign are you? What sign are you? But then the police are saying, don't tell people what sign you are. So when someone asked for your sign, you were like, um, because they were curious. Like, yeah, isn't that, that interesting? Well, that does pose a problem. Yes. Right? <laughs> and then everyone who was this one of the signs that had already been shot thought they were safe. Right. So people were also, and this is very reminiscent of Son of Sam, if you're familiar with the case, people were having parties and listening to CB radios and running to the scene every time they heard the police code for a shooting over the radio because they wanted to catch him. It seemed the citizens of New York wanted to take matters into their own hands, just like they did in the 1970s. But nothing happened, and nothing would happen for a very long time. In an article posted before the night of July 11th, the media revealed that the police had been able to collect fingerprints off of the note that had been left at the fourth crime scene. Remember, he handled the note without his glove on. And they also had some DNA because he licked one of the envelopes closed. They were unable to make any matches with fingerprints that they had in the system. But Seda did not know that. And he was terrified to learn that they had his fingerprints and his DNA, whatever that was. In their investigation, the police were able to determine that the gun the shooter was using was either homemade weapon or it was an antique gun. They assumed, though, that it was a homemade gun because of the inaccuracies and the fact that only one shot was fired. They also brought in a linguist to analyze the phrases And the linguist tells them that the shooter is most likely a Haitian man who spoke Creole and French. Isn't that crazy? That's what was gathered. Yeah. See, like, this is what I find so (laughs) fascinating. Now, I know that hindsight is 2020, but I think that this linguist was influenced by the fact that this sketch had him depicted as a black man. So that's why they're saying, oh, he's Haitian, because they're trying to associate a black man with French. Correct. Yeah. And and it's like, it's totally off the rails. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. So that's what makes me, you know, all of these cases that are unsolved, but we kind of go off of these definites of like stuff with the Zodiac, for example, um, or any missing persons case. It's like sometimes these definites that police think they have are indefinites. 
So it's like you always have to have an open mind when you're dealing with something that's unsolved. I think, yeah, I think that when you're dealing with any case that you don't have enough information about, you should never speak in absolutions. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I mean, how can you do that? You know, you know, right. things can change in the drop of a dime or whatever, the drop of a hat, whatever. Like things change. I don't know the actual phrase. So I, think, I don't think it's a drop of a hat, but whatever. You get my point. You're right. You're right. You, you get my point. John like, does usually like phrases. I, he always I says screw incorrectly. phrases all the time, regardless, regardless. You want to know what my favorite was? Did I tell them no, this? No, already? don't tell them that. No, 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 no. Don't tell them that. <laughs> no, this is so good. We were, what <sighs> were we doing? We were like playing video games together and you said. <laughs> Wait, can I, can I just interject? I have to. Okay. I was, I, I had a lot to drink before this happened. If that's your if that's your defense, that's fine. I'll uh, take it. Okay. I'll accept no, it. That's definitely it because we did we went we went out. We had Oh yeah. We had margaritas we and did. you know how I get we with did. tequila. Yes. I can't handle my tequila and that that's what happened. <laughs> but go ahead, continue so, now. The saying goes, I see, said the blind man. Which, you know, is like, okay, well he's blind, but he's saying I see, so he was enlightened. John goes <laughs> He goes Mm-hmm, said the blind man. <laughs> no, he didn't. That's not the same. Okay. Should we, I, can we make that a shirt? We should make that a shirt. No. Yes, totally. We that should make that a shirt. Sell. We uh, can't even sell our regular You know what? You're right. Shirts. But you know what? I would totally make that a shirt. Absolutely, hands down. I'm sure there's one person that likes mm-hmm, me that would do man. that. That would buy that shirt. Mm-hmm, said the blind man. So now all me and all of his friends, all we, that's what we say to John all the time. Guys, they they don't let me live it down. Never, you and they can't. make me feel like <laughs> like, like John has really them making me sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's great when all your friends and your wife gang up on you. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> so John always like does sayings wrong, but it's it's adorable. It's a nice, it's you know, a personality trait. Yeah, sure. I just happen to screw things up. It's a personality <laughs> trait. Um, but anyway, like I was saying though, you can't speak in absolutions because things do change, and you're really not ever sure of anything so until you have concrete proof of something you can't you can't say stuff like that i completely agree with you so over two years will pass and it seemed as if the zodiac went quietly into the night and never returned eddie seda is so terrified about the fact that they have his fingerprints and dna which he doesn't know even what that is that he doesn't commit any crimes for two years wow Over that time, the task force was reduced until it was only one detective who was working the case. Every once in a while, they would check the prints into the system to see if anyone knew that had been entered matched, or if some people died, like men died that fit the description, they would check the prints. But they really had no idea why he stopped. We know now that fear of being caught is what made Eddie Seda stop killing, but... He would have the urge to kill again in August of 1992. But before we get into his second round of crimes, we're going to take a break and talk about our next sponsor of the show, Peloton. Repeating the same thing day in and day out can be boring. And when it comes to our workouts, boring is the worst thing that we can have because then you're more likely to skip it altogether. But the best way to stay motivated and to prevent burnout is variety. And I have never had more variety in my workouts than I have with Peloton. Peloton offers such an amazing wide range of equipment and classes that you'll never use boring to describe your workouts again. 
And this year, Peloton has exciting new additions to add to their repertoire. Like boxing, something that has been so fun to add to my routine. Peloton is stepping right into the ring with its newest discipline, no gloves needed. Discover a fast, furious, and fun workout with Peloton instructors in your corner. And even if you've never boxed before, these classes will have you working up a sweat while you're working on your fundamentals of form, footwork, and fun combos that will keep you on your toes. And beyond boxing, Peloton has any kind of classes for any level that you need available just for you. But if the bike is still your speed, you are in luck too. Because Peloton has added the new artist series music selections, where you can work out to the music of a single artist for an entire class, from your favorite hits to the deep cuts, from pop to rock to hip-hop to EDM. There are over 100 artist series to choose from. Find your favorite music and turn your next workout into a concert. So make your workouts exciting again and visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. That's O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com. Again, that's OnePeloton.com. Okay, let's get back into the show. So although Seda had not committed any crimes during his two-year hiatus, he still thought about his mission. He often visited the sites where he had shot his first four victims and relished in the work that he thought he had done. So he revisited the sites of his crime and that almost like satiated his urge. So creepy. So weird. So in August of 1992, just after his 25th birthday, he felt safe enough to continue his mission. If the fingerprints were going to do him in, then they would have done so already. And, as he said once, the die had been cast. So, he decided to start again. However, over the two years, he had rethought his methods. He believed it was too dangerous to stalk his victims. He was going to just now commit crimes of opportunity. He also now wanted to leave phrases and codes in his letters, because he thought that would spread more fear, just as the original Zodiac had done. The fifth victim of Eddie Seda, and the second to die, was a 39-year-old's mother of two, Patricia Fonte. Patricia was a divorced outpatient of a mental facility. She lived in the Norwood section of the Bronx, where she lived with her boyfriend. The two worked hard to manage their schizophrenia and stay on track with their medication. She had been told recently by her doctor that stopping smoking and going on walks could help her with her asthma. She didn't want to stop smoking, so she started walking. She often walked very late at night because she found it hard to sleep with her medication. She also very much enjoyed randomly taking the subway to locations and switching from train to train, just talking to people and bumming cigarettes off of everyone she met. And that was what she was doing in the early morning hours of August 10th, 1992. She had taken the subway for a while and ended up getting off in East New York. By the time she reached Highland Park, which was attached to the Cypress Hill Cemetery, she was out of money and out of cigarettes. She was going to have to rely on the kindness of strangers for a way back home and the cigarettes she craved. 
She had asked a few people in the park if they had cigarettes to spare or some change, but they all had rejected her. Then she saw a man in a baseball cap staring at her from the softball bleachers. He was sitting by himself. He got up and began to walk towards her, and once he got close enough, she asked him for a cigarette. He flashed what looked like a cigarette and motioned for her to follow him. Follow me, and I will, he said. So she did. He started to walk up large stone steps that were, on that night, mostly obscured by fog. He led her to the top of the stairs, which crossed them over Vermont Place and led them into Queens. They had reached an embankment by the Ridgewood Reservoir. There was a path near the reservoir that was heavily covered with foliage. Patricia did not know that this secluded path that had a tunnel of branches and foliage hiding the inside from view was a known lover's lane of sorts for gay men, and she wouldn't know that because she wasn't from the area, but it was very secluded, and Seda knew that. And he also knew that they would be alone. When they reached the path, he motioned for her to go in first, and that he would follow her. He showed her a light that he had, and he shone the flashlight past her from behind, and, you know, it was for, so she could see where she was going. This is, like, scary to go down this path. I feel like there are, there were a lot of signs that you probably shouldn't have continued to do that. Follow this man for a yeah. cigarette. Yeah. yeah. It's, I think it, maybe she thought the intention was something else that she might have been into. Possible. But it's not going to go well. So Seda at first is walking behind her and he's showing like the flashlight is shown beyond her. So she sees where she's going. But then all of a sudden the light kind of disappears. And the reason why the light disappears is because he's no longer showing the flashlight in front of her. He's shining it directly on her back. And before she can turn around and be like, where's the light? He shoots her in the back. Oh, no. Yes. The twenty-two caliber bullet passed right through her body without hitting any organs. She collapsed to the ground in pain, but was still very much alive. But this time, he was in a secluded area, and he had time. So he reloaded the zip gun and fired it at her again. Because of the dark, he didn't know exactly where she had been shot the second time, but he knew that contact was made. But Patricia was not going to go down without a fight. After the second shot, she got up and tried to get away from him. This is where things completely change for Seda. It's clear that he doesn't want to leave her alive. So he has to kill her, even if it means changing his M.O. He kicked her back to the ground, but she was still trying to get up so he pulled out the knife he had. He was nervous to use it. He'd never used a knife before, and he didn't want to leave behind any clues, and he certainly didn't want to get blood on himself, but she was still trying to get away, so he had to do something. He kneeled down, and he stabbed her in the back, and in the chest, and in the arms, over and over and over again. As he was attacking her, he thought, this attack was okay because the original Zodiac stabbed that one male victim at the lake. 
So in his mind, he's justifying what he's doing to her. And as he stabbed her, she was begging and pleading for him to leave her alone and to let her live. But he didn't relent. Eventually, he punctured both of her lungs and her kidney. He checked his watch. It was 1.50 a.m. And she was no longer fighting. Patricia Fonti's body was discovered by a man walking on the path 18 hours later. When he saw the dead body, he immediately called the police. When the investigators got to the scene, they thought at first that this was a drug overdose because um, there was a lot of drug overdoses that were found in Highland Park in the, ni- in the early 90s. Patricia had been wearing all black. And because it was so dark in the path, even though it was daytime because of all the branches, they didn't notice that she was soaked in blood. But once they lifted her shirt, because they were looking for track marks, they realized that she had been stabbed several times. So the crime scene unit was called immediately. And it was later determined by a medical examiner that she had been stabbed over 100 times. What? Over 100 times. Oh, my God. I think that shows the anger that Eddie Seda has. That, you know, when you hear about the other crimes and about his history, I don't think we really realize how much anger is built up within him. But to stab someone 100 times, think about the rage that he must have felt. It also shows that, I don't want to say that he's evolving, but... It seems to me that with time given, look what he could do. Yeah. Because a lot, all the other, all the other victims, it was like a quick hit and run, you know. Whereas he had time to see the victim fall and to see if they would get up. Like his mo is evolving yeah. and changing. Yeah. To yeah. lure her is so different. Is so different, and also to go after a woman is also not his mo. Well, after the two years. He really sat and thought about things and he realized like what he was doing was probably going to get him caught. So he has to change things up. I wonder, I mean, cause that's like to, to stab someone a hundred times. I mean, that's the ferocity of that is, it's pretty insane. I wonder, do you think maybe it had something to do with because she was a woman? Oh yeah. A hundred percent. You know, and because she was going on that path with him. Right. Because and I, that I, would be. Quote unquote, air quote, you know, air quotes here, the sinner, you yes. know, which would more line up with any other victim that he's had before. Not that I'm saying, I mean, this is right. brutal. And, no, we know what you mean. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean? But it, it would match better. It lines up better with what he has an issue with. Well, there's actually two factors to that. So the first is maybe he's punishing her because he does consider her a sinner because of what that she was willing to follow him down this path, or his rage comes out. Because now he's confronted with his own sexuality. Because he could have very easily or maybe thought about having sex or rape, like having consensual sex with this woman. Or the possibility that he could have raped her. Maybe. And a lot of times forensic psychologists will say that when a man has sexual confusion in his life... And he is a murderer. Sometimes the stabs act as the act of penetration for him. Uh, yeah. Which is disgusting. Yeah. But 
Um, I think that this says so much about him and his built up frustration and the, him questioning his sexuality at, you know, to live in New York City and be like this 25 year old virgin. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Also, we have to remember that this is two years of built, like you said, like built up aggression, but two years of not doing anything, sitting there and pondering what he's going to do next. So I, of course, the next time he has the chance, it's going to be bad, which yes. is what we see here, too. So I think it's like a, a mixture of all the things that we've said that is leading to her death and it being so brutal and just unbelievable. Right. So this murder was never attributed to Seda as the copycat Zodiac because no note was left. And not only was no note left, but this was not the way that he usually did things, right? But surprisingly, at how brutal this crime was, didn't make the news. And I think that just has to do with, like, how, you know, desensitized New Yorkers are and how often crime occurs within the boroughs. That's true. And it would later be found out that Patricia Fonte is a Leo. So now she's going to represent the Leo on the his Zodiac wheel that he's creating. The next time Seda would strike, it would be June 4th, 1993, almost one entire year later. 40-year-old James Weber was trying to get from Queens to his sister's house in Brooklyn. His plan had been to take the subway, but he was 15 cents short. So instead of asking money from strangers, he decided to just walk. The faster way to get there would be for him to cut through Highland Park. Just after midnight, he was walking past the cemeteries. He actually was very close to where Patricia's body had been found. And as it began to rain, he picked up the pace. This was when he passed Seda, who was waiting under the shelter of a tree. There was no following of James Weber. Instead, Seda ran up quickly behind him and shot him. Again, the recoil of the gun caused him to miss his target, which was his lower back. Instead, the twenty-two caliber bullet hit him right in the butt and headed south, lodging itself in his thigh. Ouch. Yeah. Uh, James had been caught off guard, and he was just, you know, thinking, I got to get to my sister's house. It's starting to rain. And then out of nowhere... He just has this shooting pain radiating throughout his body and he falls to the ground. And then he hears something that he didn't expect to hear. A laugh. That is so Sato creepy. Sato was laughing. Laughing as he was running away back into the graveyard. That's terrifying. And he was able to see that it, it was a man who had long dark hair that was tied together by multicolored, like, hairbands. And he said the man was laughing, almost like he was giggling to himself. And he was in so much pain that he could barely get himself up. But he was so terrified that this laughing man would come back. Talk about emotional damage, right? Yes. So James got himself back up to his feet and staggered towards Jamaica Avenue. To do that, he would have to travel down the steps that 10 months before Seda had once led Patricia Fonte up. 
Oh my god, that's crazy. So now this is like his now this is his new area. Well, well, Highland, if you look at um Cypress Hill Cemetery, it's like one large large strip. There's many cemeteries within it. Um but Highland Park is all all the way to the west end of the the park where the cemeteries are. So everything's actually all connected. It's the same spot. Okay. The only crime that doesn't happen within the area of Highland Park and Cypress Hill Cemeteries is the Central Park shooting. So, an ambulance is called. He's able to flag down a police car. And he keeps telling them about this laughing man. The ambulance takes him to the hospital. He does survive. And James Weber, the sixth victim, was a Libra. So now he has another Zodiac sign to add to his chart. And this, again, is not linked to the copycat because there's no note left. And again, the bullet cannot be retrieved. This is crazy. Yes. And um, it's really sad because James Weber has reoccurring nightmares of this laughing man shooting him. Like I said, emotional damage. I mean, this is like... uh... I mean, it's traumatizing. I mean, think about that. Yeah. Not only were you shot, you're on a, you know, you're on the ground, you're trying to get up, and like you have someone like that's coming to you laughing. It's strange. It's just. It's bad. It, it'll definitely keep you on edge for a very long time. Oh yeah. Not forever. So for the next attack, Seda did not want to wait long. A little over a month later, he crept up on a homeless man named John Diacone, who had been in and out of hospitals due to his schizophrenia. While he was walking along the Interborough Walkway in Queens on the night of July 20th, 1993. He shot the 47-year-old man at point-blank range in the neck. The 38 caliber bullet tore through his carotid artery, causing him to die. Seda's seventh victim, a Virgo, had been the third of his to die. Again, no note is left. The next shooting took place on October 2nd, 1993. 40-year-old Diana Ballard was sitting just inside Highland Park near Jamaica Avenue around 1 a.m. She had made the 15-block trip from her home because she liked to hang out there. She sat in front of the playground where she used to take her children. She said that just as she was on the bench, she saw some movement out of the corner of her eye. When she looked to see what it was, she realized it was a man running towards her. She would later describe him as an attractive Hispanic man with a mustache. He had on a black hat, gold shirt, and black pants. He was running towards her, and as he got closer, he reached into his jacket and pulled out a very large gun. He pointed it at her, and without hesitation, he pulled the trigger as she was starting to turn away. The 22 caliber bullet struck her in the side of her neck, but this time the slug splintered in two. It luckily missed major arteries, but it sliced through her nerves and sat very close to her spine. She fell to the ground and would later say that it felt as if she was lying flat on the ground, but her legs were raised above her because she could barely feel them, and it was a result of all of the nerve damage that she had suffered. She tried to hold her neck to stop the bleeding. She feared her attacker would soon return. 
but Eddie Seda was already running from the scene. This victim had been different. She saw his face, but he thought he was okay because he shot her in the head. He didn't realize that the recoil of the zip gun caused him to actually shoot her lower than he intended. Once Seda thought he was safe, he checked his watch and wrote in his notebook that it was 1.13 a.m. Diane Ballard survived the attack, but was left partially paralyzed. She needs to now walk with a cane and take medication daily to live with the pain of her nerve damage. Diane was a Taurus, which will be the only duplicate sign that we see from Eddie Seda, but statistically it was bound to happen because of his changed demo. So Eddie Seda did not plan to go out again. Eddie Seda planned to go out again on March 10th, 1994. As he was walking down the street, he took the zip gun out of his zip jacket to look at it. And when he looked back up again, he saw that there were two cops in front of him. The officers took the gun from him and the three and a half inch blade that he had as well. Oh, you're busted now. He was arrested for felony gun possession. While being arrested, he was calm and friendly with the officers. He showed them how to unload the gun safely so they didn't get hurt. And although he seemed calm, internally he was panicking. He was nervous that if he got arrested, his fingerprints would be entered into the system and the knife that they had taken from him was the knife that he had used to kill Patricia Fonte. Oh my god. I mean, honestly, there's so much evidence on his persons right now. Like, Yeah, they got him. They got him. So the protocol when you take an illegal or unregistered gun off of someone is to run ballistics to see if it's connected with any other crimes. But this was a zip gun. Technically, ballistics could be done, but it would be dangerous. So the weapon was labeled inoperable and dangerous. So no ballistics testing was done. No, 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 no. Stop. Don't tell me he's going to get out of this. As a result, his public defender was able to argue that if it was labeled as such, it could not be used as a weapon, and he must have done a good job because the charges were dropped and the court records sealed. Those fingerprints were never entered into the system. What? Yeah. You have got to be kidding me. You know, that's the first time I've ever heard of, like, having a public defender and you're good. <laughs> I know. I know. You know what I mean? What are the friggin' chances? What are the chances of that happening? I know. And also, you know what's funny? This kid, this kid's, well, I just don't want to say kid. This guy's smart. Well. Well, yeah, at this point, he's 26. I, I don't want to say smart. Because anytime I say smart, people get mad at me. I'm, he's not smart. But he he definitely thought about what he was carrying because he's only carrying a three-inch blade. Three and a half. Three, still. It's. I think that's still within like your right to carry a, a knife in the city. Yeah, it has to be under four inches. I, I think believe. it's four inches. Like I think it's blade from blade to like like if you put it across your palm, I think it has to be within your palm or something yeah. like that. Like that. So I think you're good. But like, that's what I'm saying. Like I wonder if that was something that he thought about. Like if I ever got stopped or if anything happened, I'll have something that's legal to own in my pocket. Right, because you could say it's for protection. He lives in a really dangerous area of the city in the early 90s. Yeah, I I cannot believe he got off on a technicality like that. Well, I know it seems like an injustice, but usually that is the outcome of these cases. So it's just crazy because he's a serial killer and you got him. 
That's so nuts. So now all of these crimes have been committed since he started his crimes again and changed his M.O., but he hasn't alerted the media. He didn't leave a, a note at any scene. I think that was because he was afraid he'd leave his marks on it again. Well, now he wants to. Okay. <laughs> on July 21st, 1994, he felt that he wanted to, again, make people aware of his mission. And he wanted to spread more fear by using a coded message. So in this letter, he created a totemic cryptogram. I know that sounds intense, but what it is, is it's a it's a cryptogram or like a code, a coded message that is made within what looks like totem poles. So like there's a totem pole and there's symbols going from the top to the bottom. And he made several of these totem pole like lines. Beneath the cryptogram, he drew a scoreboard that read NYPD zero with a sad face. Zodiac nine with a smiley face. So now he's <laughs> taunting the police. Yeah. Yep. Then he listed all of the victims that he had shot and their location and what caliber he had used to shoot them. And this is how he claimed the other victims. He then wrote something that he had recorded in his notebook. Sleep, my little dead, how we loathe them. He closed the envelope that was pre-stamped and he mailed it to the New York Post. Seda was announcing that he was back. Now, at first, the Post thought that this really wasn't the Zodiac because he really had been gone for, at this point, four, four years, just shy of four years. So they thought, okay, this is a joke. And one of the reasons why they really didn't think it was the Zodiac, because nothing about astronomy was mentioned. And he did always make that comment about the 12th sign will die when the heavens are revealed, but that wasn't there. So that's why they didn't think it was real. But once they made the connections to the crimes, they realized, okay, this is, this must be him. The Post put the letter in the paper and interviewed all of the surviving victims, all of whom were dealing with intense post-traumatic stress. And when it came to deciphering the code, a writer at the Post named Kieran Crowley, who's actually the author of the book that I've been getting a majority of these details from for the podcast, thought that he should take a crack at it. He and his father-in-law, who was into cracking codes, his father-in-law had done so for the military during World War II, Together, they decoded the following phrase from the totemic cryptogram. And it said, well, first of all, to decipher it, they had to realize that Seda made a mistake. Oh, really? So he couldn't even get it right. So that's interesting. So could they have figured out the phrase even though the mistake was made? No, they had to fix the mistake and then they could figure out the phrase. Oh, my God. Like he made a mistake in drawing the symbols. Of course he did. Yes. So what the phrase said was, this is the Zodiac speaking. I am in control of my mastery. Be ready for more. Yours truly. Now, this yours truly phrase is significant because not only did the California Zodiac use yours truly to sign off on the letters, 
So did Jack the Ripper. That's great. Well, I, I secret passion of mine, Jack the Ripper. I yeah. uh, I think it's one of the most interesting, most intriguing cases I think out there. And if it's you insane. Want a good podcast? Everyone listening on, I'm, I don't know if you guys. I mean, you have to like comedy in your true crime podcasts. But if you are somebody who likes comedy in your true crime, last podcast on the left did a crazy series on Jack the Ripper. What was it, like six parts? It was a really long It was a part, really yeah. long series. Yeah. yeah. So if you're really into Jack the Ripper, you should go check that out because they went crazy with their research on yeah, that Yeah, Jack one. the Ripper is one of the most intriguing cases, I think, in my opinion. It's just I'm a total mystery, and I love mystery, so. Yeah, it is. It's, it's interesting. Okay. So let's take a break here to talk about our final sponsor of the show, Good Chop. Good Chop is America's online butcher. With Good Chop, you get a flexible monthly subscription plan for high-quality American meat and seafood. You can choose the medium or large plans and enjoy your favorite cuts of beef, chicken, pork, and seafood delivered flash-frozen for freshness and sealed with dry ice inside an insulated box. There are many things that are amazing about Good Chop, and one of them is that all products are sourced in the USA, unlike many other companies. Good Chop sources its meat and seafood exclusively from American farms and fisheries that set the bar high for animal welfare and sustainable practices. Cattle are born, raised, and harvested in the United States of America. And by choosing Good Chop, you are supporting local family farms and independent ranchers right here in the U.S. Another great thing is that it's only the good stuff. Good Chop especially prides itself on sourcing beef that comes with no antibiotics or added hormones, ever. No artificial ingredients, only the good stuff. We have been using Good Chop for months now, and we have had such amazing cuts of meat and fresh seafood. John loves the grass-fed steaks, and now that the weather's getting better, it's amazing to have them on the grill. During dinner, we're reading your reviews and commenting on just how good the steak is. It is the convenience and the flavor that has us set on using Good Chop forever. And True Crime Couple listeners, we have a deal for you. Go to goodchop.com slash TCC100 and use code TCC100 to get $100 off your first three boxes. Again, that's goodchop.com slash TCC100 and use code TCC100 to get $100 off your first three boxes. Good chop, America's online butcher. Okay, guys, let's get back to the show. In an article that Crowley wrote revealing the message, he spoke with a psychiatrist who said the killer was a lonely hunter who was seeking attention. He was trying to be glamorous, but he was, in fact, cowardly. And the editor of the Post actually is going to ask Crowley to include in the article that he writes another kind of, like, totemic cryptogram that's a response to what the Zodiac said, and it's going to just say in the code that this copycat Zodiac created, Eddie Seda, it's saying, call us because we want to talk to you. 
But Seda, in fact, never calls the New York Post. I think he was a little bit too nervous to do that. Now that the Zodiac was back and mocking the police, a second task force was set up. They retrieved all of the bullets they could, and the fact that they were different calibers and were smooth made them think that it had to have been a zip gun because no one would own that many different antique weapons that would be able to shoot that many calibers. So they were kind of set on the fact that their copycat Zodiac was using a zip gun. So they requested an arrest record of anyone who had been caught with a zip gun in the areas in which their crimes had taken place. And they tested the fingerprints of those that had been arrested for weapons charges using zip guns. But there was no match. 30% of those that had been arrested for zip guns came back denied because, like Eddie Seda, those charges had been denied. And because those charges were dismissed, their fingerprints weren't in the system. Of course. I mean, like, the luck of this guy. You know, if anything, the biggest thing in this case is luck of everything. Uh, for a majority of the victims, they were lucky enough where the bullets didn't penetrate anything to kill them. That's true. You know, I mean, even though we have, you know, other <laughs> other victims that weren't so lucky, unfortunately. You know, rest in peace. You know, I, I feel terrible. You know, but like... There's but a, a lot of luck in of the victims yeah. were okay. There's a lot of luck in this case, but when it comes to nabbing him, we can't seem to do it. <laughs> I know, and it seems like it's always just there. Well, well the task force can't do anything about this 30% because the records are sealed. So there's nothing they can do. So they figure, okay, let's widen the scope of everything. And this is like a pretty big deal what they do. They take everyone from the surrounding area of the Cypress Hill Cemetery around the age range that they think this guy is, and they check arrest records. So anyone with anyone living within a certain radius of the Cypress Hill Cemetery that has an arrest record, their fingerprints are checked. And that ends up being like 4,500 people. I mean, it's a lot, but you have to work through all of it to try to piece it together. Yes, and it took a long time. It took months for them to, to go through and do that with. And again, it, it yielded no results because, again, his arrest record was sealed. You would – I know it sucks because even if – I feel like even if you did know, wait a minute, we arrested a guy um, who had a zip gun and a knife in his pocket, but we can't do anything because it's been sealed. Correct. That kind of – it's like it's good. But it's bad. In this case, it's terrible. And it's not just him. 30% of all people arrested with the zip gun, their charges were dropped. So they thought, okay, it's probably within that population. Or he hadn't been arrested. Oh. I know. It's like right there. We, we yes. could like stick our hands out just like and get the evidence we need, but yep. we can't. So now at this point of the story, I'm going to reintroduce you to an old character. Chachi. Okay. Seda's younger sister. At this point, Seda is 28 years old and Chachi is about to turn 17. She still lived at home with her mother and brother, but recently dropped out of high school and is working at a local bakery. In fact, hers is the only source of income coming into their household. 
Now, ironically, one of the victims, Mario Oroco, was a customer at the bakery, and Chachi had a very friendly relationship with him. Like, what are the chances of that even happening as well? So she was trying to manage her mother's strict rules and her brother's bizarre mood swings, while also trying to navigate a life with friends and just having a social life. And it was difficult to do so. Another thing that was making it hard to have a social life was that her brother had been, since March of 1995, telling patrolling officers about who was dealing drugs in the neighborhood because he wanted to combat what he called the street people. Now, this is complicated. Chachi is a good a good girl, and I think she was trying to find her way to have a life outside of her home. Unfortunately, the life outside of her home, her very restrictive home environment, was surrounded by some unsavory characters, and she is at a very easily influenced age like she's 17 years old so the first people that are going to grab her on the streets are going to be people who were dealing drugs so Tachi was friends with many drug dealers in the neighborhood and they had warned her tell your brother to stop or else we're going to have to take him out or put a pipe bomb in your apartment see that's never good no. You don't want things to escalate that badly. No. <laughs> Especially when they know there's a rat in the apartment complex and they know who it is. Yeah, It's probably not a good idea to be doing that. No, not at all. So she had warned her brother about this and he told her that it was God's business and he was doing God's work. At one point, the drug dealers in the neighborhood did attack him and they beat him to, and they were like, this is your warning. But he kept doing it. So the complicated home life of the copycat Zodiac would come to a head and be his undoing on June 18, 1996. On that day, so about a week before the events of that day would take place, Seda had a very bizarre incident. While he was walking out of his building, someone bumped into him and he absolutely lost it. He started screaming, I'm going to start killing I'm going to start killing motherfuckers because I get no sex. That was direct quote from Seda. That was a direct quote? Yeah, you think that's a... Do you think I would have embellished that? <laughs> think I want to ever say that sentence? I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh. I don't think I've ever laughed so much in a case before. Um, okay. So he's so, irate about sex. Anger right. anger building. Okay. Um, he's freaking out. Someone's just pushing him. So he's on the verge of losing it. So that's a week before these events. Also, another quick little background so you can just understand the context of this a little more. Both Seda and his mother were very vocal about a disapproval of Chachi's street friends. So they called them. So on the afternoon of June 18th, Chachi and Eddie's mother, because like I feel like it's weird calling him Seda when we're referencing Chachi because that's also, well, Chachi doesn't have the last name Seda. So I guess I could still say that. Okay. So, cause I don't, I feel like I don't want to call him Eddie. You know what you I mean? You call him whatever you want. Okay. So, so Chachi and Seda's mother was out. She was at the Spanish mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral in Manhattan. Cause remember she went every day. 
So she's going to be gone for a long time because it, it takes some time to get in and out of Manhattan and she has to take public transportation. So 17-year-old Chachi invites over her 23-year-old friend who has an extensive criminal record to come over and hang out. Shortly after the two went into her bedroom and closed the door, they were laughing and listening to music and Seda started pounding on the walls of his room. Now, Chachi knew what that meant. Whenever Seda would bang on the walls, it meant that he wanted whoever was in the apartment to leave. And Chachi and her mother knew that. So usually they would escort whoever was in the apartment out so he didn't fly into a rage. But Chachi, on this occasion, did not want to give in to her brother. He had treated her horrifically when she was young. And she was the only one paying the bills in the household. So she was upset because her mother and brother didn't work. And their welfare kind of paid for what they wanted, but Chachi had to pay the bills. So she was just kind of fed up with everything. And if she wanted to have a friend over, she could. So when it was clear to Seda that his sister was not going to listen to him, he loaded his weapon and shot through his wooden door. The bullet sailed through the kitchen and lodged itself into the kitchen wall. Okay, now he's just shooting off shots in the house? Okay. Yes. Chachi's visitor was horrified. So this, like, tough guy was like, oh my god, I'm absolutely terrified. And he's definitely going to be terrified for a very long time. But Chachi wasn't scared. She was pissed. Later explaining that she was tired of her brother, who she thought was lazy and running the house, she ran into his room and said, what is wrong with you? Obviously, there's many more expletives in this conversation that these two siblings are having. But she said, what is wrong with you? And Seda stood there quietly and calmly in the middle of his room. His arms were folded across his chest, and in one hand was a shotgun that he had made, but Chachi couldn't see it. Because he was like holding it behind him. Chachi told her brother to stay out of her business. And she started to warn him about what would happen if he did something like that again. And he interrupted her. And what if I do do it again, he said. And this prompted the two to start screaming at each other. Finally, Chachi went to go storm out of her brother's room. When she felt an explosion of pain radiate from the small of her back and move up her back and down her legs. She'd been shot by her brother with the shotgun. Are you serious? Yep. She fell instantly on the ground, her face hitting the wood floor. She tried to scramble up and yelled for her friend to come help her, but he was hiding in her room, not willing to come out and help her. Chachi pushed herself up and managed to grab the phone. She began to dial 911, but was only able to press the first number before her brother smacked the phone away from her. And at this point, Chachi's friend pokes his head out of the room, and Eddie screams at him to get back in the room. And he listened. He even piled furniture in front of the door so it would be harder for Seda to get in if he tried to. Then Seda headed back into his room to retrieve more weapons. Chachi knew this would be her only opportunity to get away. So she pushed herself up and moved as fast as she could to the door. 
and left the apartment. She staggered to her neighbor's door and begged for help. The neighbor, a mother with four children, let Chachi in and called the police. It was just past two in the afternoon. Paramedics arrived at the apartment before the police officers did, and they began to work on Chachi. Their main goal was to stop the bleeding. People in and around the apartment building had heard the shooting and the commotion, so many of them gathered outside. So they could still be curious, but be kind of safe. You know what I mean? When the police arrived, the people yelled at them that he's still inside. And as they did, there were gunshots. Eddie Sato was shooting at them from the third story window. Oh, so he was just, he was like, this is how I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. I'm just going to. Oh, yes. Jeez. He's open fire shooting at the police and the civilians in the street. Now, it's important to note that the building that he lives in is U-shaped and in front of it, like, you know, like it, it kind of like the U hugs it is a, a courtyard. Yeah, like a courtyard. And people are gathered in the courtyard and on the sidewalk and he's just shooting down like he's from he's in the middle of the U and he's shooting down at them. Oh, uh, that's actually like terrifying. Yes. <laughs> Cuz he has the vantage point he could shoot. Yep. Oh my god. And from that those first few shots, a man was hit in the neck with a flying piece of brick that was kind of like flown from being shot by a gun. Wow. Yeah. And the officers who had responded had done so on bikes. So the only thing they could do is hide behind the nearest vehicles that they could find. And they're yelling at bystanders to, like, move. Because people are, like, curiously looking. They're like, get down. Yeah, sometimes people don't give a shit. They just... They don't understand what's happening. No. So, Seda then had a three and a half hour standoff with police. For three hours? Wow. Yeah, he had so many police officers on the roof of his building, behind his building, in front of his building. And he was wearing, like, an army helmet to protect himself every time he would, like, peek out of the window. Like, he was, like, full-fledged, ready to, like, go out fighting. But eventually, um, they bring in a negotiator who ironically was on the copycat Zodiac task force. That's cool. (laughs) And this negotiator was trying to convince Seda to stop shooting. And eventually he, Seda allows him to come into the apartment complex to talk to him through the door. And really what Seda is most concerned about is that he doesn't want to go to Rikers. He wants to go to a facility upstate. He's just trying to make terms now. Yes, I think it's because he's so disgusted with street people, as he calls them. He doesn't want to be surrounded by them, he says. Well, I don't know, buddy. I don't know if it works that way. I also think you're worse than every single person you shot. Those people are all really nice. Yeah, like all those people had, they did nothing wrong. Yeah, they're actually all really wonderful people. So eventually, like they try to like make him feel like, okay, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And they convinced Seda to put all 13 of his guns, 13 guns, into a bucket that they lower down from the roof. Eddie also informs them that in his room he has two pipe bombs, a tear gas canister, and a small grenade. 
Where did he get all this stuff from? He orders it from like um, magazines. I mean, I guess things were and different then he in the nineties. He makes the guns. Yeah. Oh yeah, totally different. You kidding? I didn't me? think you could buy a grenade though, but uh, he got it somehow. Yes, you can. So Seda was taken down to an awaiting police car. And as Chachi's friend was being taken out of the building and being treated by EMTs, Seda made the comment that he should have killed him. <laughs> no remorse at all. No, none. And you just shot your sister. I know. it's ugh. So he did ask if his sister was okay once he was brought downstairs. And he was told that she's being taken care of. But one of the detectives, when they... When they were, like, collecting the 13 guns, once they reached the ground level and they saw that they were all zip guns, one of the detectives goes, imagine this is Z-Man, because that's what they called Zodiac. Oh, my God. They said it. <laughs> said, imagine this is him. So Eddie Seda was charged with 15 counts of attempted murder and multiple counts of possession of a deadly weapon. He, of course, was admitting to it all. He was then instructed to write out a confession. The confession was plagued with grammatical and spelling errors. But what was most interesting was the little things that Seda did to the letter. When he wrote the name of Chachi's friend, who had been in the house that day, he underlined it. Kind of like he did with that word Faust. And then at the bottom of his letter, he drew a cross. And at the bottom three points, he wrote the number seven. When the officers taking the statement Asked what that meant, Seda told them that it represented God's pure love. Now, the first written confession could not be accepted because he had not mentioned the three and a half hour standoff, only the incident that occurred with his sister and her friend. It's like, no, dude, you're in trouble for the whole thing, not just that one little thing. So he had to write it out again. But the officer brought the first confession to the detective who was the negotiator and also on the Zodiac case, because he said, this looks like kind of familiar, like the stuff in the letter, right? And that was a really good eye from that officer. And right away, the detective was like, this is our guy. The handwriting, the mannerisms, like this is him. Wait, so you telling me that if he would not have written that on that letter, he would not have been charged for all the other crimes that he committed. I think eventually they would have tested, because of the zip guns, I think they would have tested his fingerprints. Okay, okay. Like I, he would have been found out to be the guy because of the zip guns, but this kind of made it, this accelerated the fact that they knew it was him. Yeah, I think it just solidified the fact that this guy is our guy. Oh, yeah, 100%. Okay. So the detective went to talk to Seda again. He started with the events of that day, and at that point, Seda was calm because he thought, oh, they're not getting me for Zodiac. But then as soon as the Zodiac crimes were mentioned, he clammed up and didn't want to talk anymore. As the detective was in the interrogation room with him, his prints were being run against the prints that had been found on the Zodiac copycat letters. When the detective left the interrogation room, he was told that Seda's prints were a match for the ones on the letter. It had taken a month shy of six years, but he had finally been caught. Once they brought up the fact that his prints matched the letter, he confessed to it all, which is how we know so many details. Plus, Eddie Seda is very vocal about his crimes. Um, 
He did, during the interview, ask how his sister was again, who was in her, in the middle of a surgery at that point. The pellets from the shotgun had went into her muscles and her intestines. Most were removed, but others had to be passed naturally, so she had to wear a colostomy bag for months. This poor woman. Yeah, and and she needed three surgeries in total. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's, I mean, there's so many victims here, but like your own sister, I, I mean, I, I can't even try to justify, like, it's sick. Like yeah. I can't. It's all bad, but it's like that's your sister. You put her through hell for her whole entire life. Yeah, and then you shoot her. It's just like, and that, and then she has to go through all that, all the surgeries, all the other stuff, and then on top of that, all your victims that you like callously just killed and didn't yeah. even care. It's sad. Oh. So the surviving victims of Eddie Seda were happy he had been caught and could no longer wreak havoc on them or their nightmares. But his confession was thrown out on a technicality. And two years after he was arrested in May of 1998, he stood trial. During the trial, he had many angry outbursts where he yelled about his lawyers and he yelled at the judge. However, interestingly enough, when the jury came out, he was always calm. Eventually, he was sentenced to 83 and a half years in prison. That meant that he won't be eligible for parole until he is 113 years old. But don't forget, he also had to face sentencing for the attempted murder charges for the standoff. His sentencing, combined with the others, meant that he was sentenced to 152 and a half years. He was never going to see the light of day again. And since his sentencing, Seda has given many interviews, and he will communicate with anyone who reaches out to him. He says now that he regrets it and is remorseful for what he has done. Yeah, I'm sure most criminals that are in jail are uh, claim to be remorseful yeah. and are sorry for what they did. But, uh, I mean, what this guy did, I mean, there, it was just... Callous. Cal- yeah, like I said, callous. Like, it, it's there's no rhyme or reason for it. Like... It, you know what? You just say to yourself, was it possible for intervention? I you know? think that it has to go back to his childhood and how he was raised. And I just think that that's why things happened the way it did. And yeah. I think he had delusions and he had no social skills. And the fact that he was in this incredibly social environment, but he was so introverted. I mean, that makes Built sense. some yeah. anger. Yeah. I think also one of the scariest things about this is that he kind of went quiet. He had a big hiatus and he used that time in that hiatus because, well, first he was scared he was going to get caught, but then to kind of perfect his crimes. Yeah. And those short amount of time, like, you know, short windows. Yeah. You know, just really sad about all of the people that lost their lives but then those that survived but they were plagued with nightmares and many of them had to deal with the the physical and psychological effects of the attack yeah i mean you're constantly tormented by the fact that someone tried to take your life yeah it's just and, so and that is very hard to get over i don't think you actually can no i don't think so either you know in the vicious way that he did went about it you know yeah, with, you'll oh, always have that ptss yeah all right, guys, so that was our part two on the Zodiac copycat. Another serial killer down. 
Another one down. But oh, it takes a long time to do them. It's a lot. It, it does, but really good, though. <laughs> yes. And before we go, we do want to thank our new members on Patreon. Thank you so much for being patrons of this show and helping us bring you all of these great episodes. So we just want to say thank you to Natasha Mehta, Hannah Osborne, Ashley Foreman, Ashley Chitwood, Zachariah Kellacooley, Josie, Gemma Kayana, Ashley Renee upped her pledge, Rebecca Calhoun, Stephanie LaRose, Michelle Rosenberg, Kelly and Remy, Erica Robinson, Thomas Naganuma, Fran Andrews, Madeline Boyd, Jody Stevenson, What's for Brunch podcast, Kathy Gerhard, and M.I. Gonzalez. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. And if you want to join Patreon and get two bonus episodes a month, you can do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right, guys, we appreciate you as always, and we will see you in a few weeks. Bye, guys. Take care, guys.